What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Elevate Experience. The podcast about overcoming struggles and adversity and how that relates to addiction, recovery, and health. I am your host and the CEO of Elevate Addiction Services, Angie Manson. And I'm Dallas Terrell, co-host and life intervention counselor at Elevate. Thank you so much for joining us, and let's jump right in. All right, well, what's up, everyone? Welcome back to the show. We have Mr. Jackson here. We're so glad to have him on the show. Jackson, welcome, man. How you doing? I'm doing very well today. How are you? I'm doing pretty good, man. I'm excited to kind of have a conversation about your life. I'm very intrigued and very interested. I'm sure we'll throw some skateboarding in there, which always gets me fired up. <laughs> and awesome. how are you? I'm good. Uh, not fired up by skateboarding, but um, <laughs> I think we'll still have plenty of good stuff that I have a lot of interest in. <laughs> that is okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's okay. I'm a girl. I don't skateboard. I mean, yeah, although there are plenty of girls, especially locally, that do. Yeah, I think it'd be strange if Angie was like super into skateboarding. It would throw me off. Yeah, what? I would be surprised. Be weird. Yeah, from our communication yeah. thus far. <laughs> <laughs> Big skateboarder. Right on. <laughs> so anyways, man, yeah, I definitely wanted to jump into kind of your sobriety story. I don't think we need to tell like an hour long version of it, but maybe kind of just the general idea of what what landed you where you are and you know then we can kind of get into sobriety and adversity in your life and and kind of trickle out from there yeah but i'm comfortable with whatever wherever you want to start with your story and 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 kind of just go from there my friend yeah absolutely i mean you know i started trying to get sober really young i started i went to my first meeting at 17 and uh got achieved long-term sobriety at 21 i'm 24 now uh nice and to be honest, like my, my story starts really young and, uh, I'll try to keep it succinct, um, and feel free to butt in whenever, whenever you want. Uh, yeah, of course, but I think I fall into two categories of, of addict slash alcoholic. Um, I use them interchangeably where I believe I was born an alcoholic. I think there was no chance of me not being one. And then I also fall into the category of alcohol saved my life until the program gave it back or until recovery gave it back. Um, so my, my story, you know, starts really young where I had a severe childhood mental illness um, that presented as basically relentless and extremely violent intrusive thoughts um, on a constant loop all of the time. Uh, and they never stopped. I had a Christian mother who believed in Christian healing. Uh, a quote I'll always remember from her was, uh, little boys don't need brain doctors. When I asked her to take me to a psychiatrist. Um, gotcha. <laughs> and there are some interesting details in there, but for the sake of being succinct, I tried to kill myself for the first time when I was eight years old. So I, I, I grew up very, very quick, um, was dealing with very serious feelings and, uh, and impulses at a very young age. And then uh, my parents got sober. My household became extremely abusive to alcoholic household. And uh, from 11 to 14, I was highly psychologically abused uh, on a daily basis. And then when I was 14, uh, my parents divorced and I finally celebrated. I was actually living in Italy for two months uh with this cult <laughs> that my uncle's in and that's a whole story this violently anti-semitic violently homophobic cult um 
And so I went down to the bar, had a triple shot of Jack Daniels and seven beers blacked out, woke up the next morning. And like so many of us, I was just like, there it is, you know, like that's it. That's it. Yeah. I had not realized how awful I felt all the time until I didn't feel that way. And for the next month, I was drinking from morning to night uh, until I got uh, had to go back to New York. Should have mentioned I was born and raised in New York. I've been in California for five years. Um, gotcha. Yeah. And, uh, it, you know, it just <laughs> escalated. You know, a few years off, 16, I, I found drugs that escalated, escalated, escalated. And by 18, I was putting down uh, almost a handle of gin, two to 400 milligrams of Adderall, four to five Xanax uh, on a daily basis. My goal was to be as numb as possible and as productive as possible. It was highly ambitious. And you nailed it. I did. <laughs> <laughs> Mission accomplished. That that cocktail will do that for you. <laughs> oh yeah, no, it did it. Uh, you know, I, I saw success after success after success, uh, which you know only fueled my use more, and uh, you know it kept escalating in my life until I was brought to my knees, and I had no consequences. My life only looked better and better on paper as I moved through life. Um, but I was so emotionally and physically and spiritually destroyed by the time I was 21 that I, I just had to stop. I didn't have a choice. I was, I was going to kill myself or I was going to get sober and I chose to get sober. So that's the brief choice. Yeah. It's the right choice. Um, yeah, man. Wow. What was the, what was the point that, or what? was the catalyst to say, okay, this is enough because you had been using for a long time, like you said, with no consequence. And a lot of listeners are a lot of people I talk to are like, well, what makes someone finally come to rehab or get sober? And I always say there's some catalyst that occurs. Right. Did that happen uh, for you? Was there some defining moment? Um, there was definitely a defi- I had a white light moment. So there was a defining moment in that sense. But I was periodically attending meetings throughout from 17 to 21. Um, I just refused to ever work a program. You know, I would go to five meetings, go, oh, that didn't work, and then go out again. Um, But essentially, yeah, I mean, you know, it was just one of those mornings where something changed. I I frequently uh, blacked out and would drive to San Francisco um, from Santa Cruz to pick up cocaine and come back uh, to use it. And so I would wake up in various parking lots in different cities, um, not really knowing not how I got the same there. As, not always safe in some parts of San Francisco. No, no, not, not a great, <laughs> not a great habit. Uh, not a great place to pass out. No, <laughs> no. Uh, and then one morning I woke up in a church parking lot um, in front of a basketball hoop, I was woken up by a basketball hitting my car. There were kids playing basketball around me. It was like 110 degrees in my car. And, uh, that was like the 10th time that happened. And I just broke. I mean, I just started bawling. Um, I, I prayed for the first time in my life and I, I called someone and just said, Hey, I'm, I'm either going to get sober or die. I need help. Um, Mm -hmm. and that's how that, that was, so not exactly a catalyst, 
it was really just over the course of those years chipping away until I couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. No, you definitely hear stories like that all the time where we, you know, like you said, it works until it doesn't. Yeah. And like when it doesn't is more of just an accumulation of a bunch of blackout stories, a bunch and times and times over of these negative consequences or these negative feelings and emotions, you know? Absolutely. Well, yeah, I appreciate you, you know, kind of summarizing. That definitely was a quick version of what happened, you know? <laughs> yeah, I think, it could I think be an hour and a half. There's two versions. <laughs> yeah, we could. Yeah, there's a lot of missing detail in there, which I think is kind of the beautiful part, you know? Like, generally, this is what happened. I was born in New York, and then I got sober. You yeah. Know? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But I think the, not to say one part is more interesting than the other, but I couldn't just ignore the cult in Italy. Like I, yeah. I, I, I've just been thinking about that since you said I was in a cult in Italy at 14 years old. Tell me more about that. How did that happen? What does that look like? Absolutely. What is this cult? That was an, <laughs> that's an insane experience. Actually, I wrote an essay on that, uh, that, pu- that was published in a, in a small literature journal, um, or creative oh, wow. essay. Uh, Essentially, I was invited by my aunt and uncle uh, to stay with them for two months in Italy. I'd never been out of the country. And of course, I I said yes. And then like a week before I got on the plane, they were like, oh, by the way, uh, we're not staying at our home in Milan. We're going to drive 14 hours to Southern Puglia and stay in a monastery with 40 members of uh, this group called Liberation. And uh, we did that. And yeah, happened. you're not going to back out at that point. <laughs> you're ready to go. Sorry. You're not going to back out at that point because you were ready to go. Bags packed. You're like, okay. Yeah, I was just like, all right, that's fucking weird. Let's do it, I guess. <laughs> and, um, so I travel seven hours or like nine hours to get to Milan and then another 14 hours to get to Puglia. And they immediately heard me into this very strange mass um in this like underground underground beneath the monastery where uh they were just it was like preaching from the writings of this random dude um who's written like 40 books and every member was required to buy all of them that were it was all in italian and they just made me go because you know hyper religious people why not um, yeah i, I yeah. have no idea um and uh, it, it was very strange. And then the reason I wrote an essay about this, uh, it was called The Erasure of Whiteness Across Borders, uh, is I realized I learned for the first time that I wasn't white, depending on where I am. Um, and uh, they were, you know, I got referred to as kike quite a bit and would the uh, kids would throw like a Hitler salute at me. Um, wow. They would, uh, you know, threaten to hurt me or you know, just what you would imagine living in a group who is violently anti-Semitic, uh, what would it, what it would be like. Um, and so that was a very strange experience learning that I wasn't completely white and, uh, yeah, I would imagine. Wow. Yeah. For, and as a 14 year old, you know, it's just (laughs) beyond strange. And then I was also coming to terms with the fact that I was bisexual at that time. And so I p- sort of put feelers out and said to one of the kids, like, do you side with the Catholic Church on gay marriage? 
and was expecting a no. But what he said was, no, we believe that we should execute gays. Uh, yeah. Oh, wow. Um, so that belief permeated the group. Um, and so, yeah, I stayed there for two months. Uh, I was scared pretty much all the time. I found alcohol a month in, like I said, and um, was not scared anymore. <laughs> right. And just kind of drank my way through it. Oh, and this is this is the craziest part, actually. Uh, I went back the next year. What? Yeah. Oh, man. Because I could drink. I okay. couldn't find alcohol in well at four, you know, at 15 at the time. And so when the next year I actually went back for the sole purpose that I could drink. Yeah. That makes sense. That's like very 15 of us, you know. It's like <laughs> can I drink there? Okay. And fine. it doesn't matter. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> that that is that is a young alcoholic right there. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, you might have been born an alcoholic. You're right. <laughs> I think maybe. I think maybe. So you're and and you know, if you want to talk about this, that's that's totally up to you. But your aunt and uncle, why would they do you, did you ever get closure on why they thought that'd be a great idea to bring you there? Like if yes. they knew your heritage or culture, why would they bring you to a place that is just so anti everything? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good question. Um, you know, after talking to my father about it, who's uh, the Ashkenazi Jew, half of my family, um, apparently members of their, of their group cult, uh, when they were like at their, at his, at their wedding, um, you know, told my dad he was going to hell and that they could save him if he, if he was willing. So I honestly think that they were, it was, they were hoping to save me. You know, they, wow. uh, they believe Jews are going to burn in hell for an eternity. So I think they gotcha. earnestly were trying to help me, um, right in their right. minds, you know, gotcha. Wow. And so, therefore, your aunt and uncle were like extremely manipulative, manipulative towards you. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Wow, that's upsetting. What did your parents think of this? I mean, did you come home and say, "Why did you guys let me do this?" Was there any controversy there, or they thought that was okay? Um, so they were so in their own bullshit at that time that mm -hmm. I don't think it even registered. Uh, yeah. I, th I think I already said, like, you know, my dad called me halfway through just to say that my mom was fucking insane. And can I talk to her? They're getting a divorce. Um, she was dealing with the divorce. And uh, I dealt with an ex such an extreme amount of trauma up to that point that it honestly wasn't that big of a deal in my life. Right. Like, yeah, it was scary and it was surreal and it was weird. But compared to everything else that had happened throughout my life, it, it, it wasn't even a blip on the radar, honestly. The, like, the thing that stands out the most from that was that realization of like the, the fluid nature of whiteness, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. That was the biggest takeaway. Yeah, absolutely. That's crazy. And I think another big takeaway, too, is like alcohol was the only thing there to help you. Yes. And why you went back. Yeah. yeah. And holding on to that and carrying it into your life moving forward. There's this blatant solution to any problem. Absolutely. 
so I guess we can maybe talk about like the moving forward, the, the growing, the healing, the unlearning. I'm really interested in that part because yeah, I guess I'll preface it with, you know, often it's a lot of our stories are so similar, you know, like the context is different, but we all kind of experience a lot of the same pains and trials and traumas. Mm -hmm. They just show up in different ways, but the healing and the unlearning and the moving forward is sometimes a little bit different yeah. for all of us ac across the board. And that's where I'm most interested in not to like denounce the past, but the healing is what we're all kind of looking for that, that solution, that growth. So if you wouldn't mind, what did that, that process look for you kind of after that basketball, basketball court epiphany, like how did you get to where you are now in recovery? Yeah, of course. No, that, that's a great question. And I love it because, and you're absolutely right. We have, we have very different lives, but I think our emotional experience of them is, is very, very similar. Um, but then that, that process of healing is, is special to each person. Um, just agree with you. Um, it was a long process, you know, like I, uh, I didn't get sober that day but I started working a program <laughs> that day. Um, nice. I, one of, uh, I'd woken up that day in that parking lot. Um, before I started, I was going through my phone to try to reconstruct the night that had occurred. Um, what the hell I was doing that whole time. And, uh, learned that my partner had broken up with me um and then like i reacted really terribly and smashed a bottle against the wall which is not something i'm proud of um not a violent person that's actually probably the most violent <laughs> thing i've done was smash a bottle against the wall yeah um <laughs> disclaimer <gasps> yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, <it's> cool. <laughs> yeah it's like that that is way out of the normal for me but um but uh <laughs> anyway so you know all of the to that point, like I said, everything was ever upward, you know, like regardless of what I was using, regardless of what I was doing, I was on an upward trajectory. And then suddenly I wasn't in that moment. Like I, I finally had lost things that I held very dear. And uh, I think a few weeks from that point is when I had my first long-term or relatively long-term stint of sobriety. Um, this will wrap back, this will rope back to mental illness actually, um, in a way that I think could be helpful for some people. Uh, but I basically like cut off, I, or contact was cut off with that partner. Um, and I decided I would contact her again when I felt uh, that I was ready to be the partner I wanted to be. Um, and I got 90 days, you know, work steps one, two, three, that, that morning I found a higher power, which is part of what I really struggled with in the years prior. I was one of those, I could not surrender to a higher power. Um, but I finally did that morning. Yeah. And, and like, you know, for kids like me who are, see success young and repeated success and growing success like it is hard to admit that your life is unmanageable 
right? Like, yeah. clearly it's manageable. It's hard to take an honest look. Yeah, no, I finally had a sponsor who said, you're going to die. Is that manageable? <laughs> it's just like, okay, maybe not. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 I was finally with that one. He was like, you want to kill yourself. How that is the most unmanageable your life could possibly be. Um, and that, that finally got through, but, uh, sorry, that was, that was too long of an anecdote. <laughs> I don't want to make you guys let it down too much. Um, so over the course of those 90 days, uh, it was an up and down process of healing. Um, I did self harm very early on in those 90 days. Uh, you know, just trying, still trying to find something to change how I felt. And by the end of those 90 days, though, I had done my first fifth step, which I know is a little early, but I'd done my first, fifth, my first fifth step. And it was like, I'm, I'm one of those where the fifth step was life changing for folks who are listening, who, who don't know, uh, what the steps are in various programs of recovery. The fifth step is a step on which you um tell a person uh essentially the nature of your wrongs um you know it gets a little confusing with the resentments and stuff so <laughs> i'll just give that summary um but I yeah that's perfect cool all right so i told my sponsor everything and it, you know it's that it's what you hear a lot but the weight off was unbelievable like it felt really similar to when i took my first drink right where like wow. it was just all of this pain I didn't know was there was suddenly just gone. When like when the words came out of his mouth, like you're a run-of-the-mill alcoholic, like nothing you did is any worse than anything I've ever heard. And I was just like, what? <laughs> so I think that was that was the real healing for me. You know, over those 90 days, I got to a Space where I could have that conversation. And after that conversation, my entire, you know, way of looking at myself and uh, the people around me had changed um, very quickly. Um, and so then after those 90 days, uh, I reconnected with my partner and we formed a healthy relationship. And, uh, you know, I had to sort of relearn how to be a person and like my grades went down. I was in school at the time, like my grades went gotcha. down when I got sober. Like I like my work ethic was lower. Like I like, <laughs> I actually had to actually, you were human again. Yeah. I was a human again. I wasn't just like this, like cocaine fueled, um, <laughs> student. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then with, uh, with the help of her and with the help of my sponsor, um, I learned how to be a healthy partner. I learned how to be uh, a healthy friend, how to be supportive, how to not um, be so self-focused. I think one thing that was really important for my healing, which uh, I haven't heard said too much, that you know when you're when you're living in guilt, when you're living in remorse. That's, that's ego still. It's just the other side of ego. It's still being just as focused on yourself. And uh, that's, that's one of the sort of revelations that occurred during that period where I think 
over the course of that period, I finally learned to drop my ego and surrender to a higher power to uh, be focused on what I can do for the next person, what I can do for my partner, not what they can do for me. And, uh, and it's an ongoing process, right? Like three years later, I'm still healing. I'm, I'm still learning how to be a better person, how to be a better partner. I'm still with that partner, actually. It's been three years now. Um, nice. Yeah, it's awesome. I love her to death. She's probably yeah, going to make some noise coming in job. soon. I'd like to think so. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's a long, complicated, and fraught process. Uh, so I'm, I'm sorry that I don't have a, a more succinct or easy response to that just because it's been complicated for me. Well, I don't think that's unusual. I think, you know, some people think maybe if I get sober, life will be perfect. And that's just not the case. I mean, it's a it's a process and it's a lifelong process. It's not a you know, there's no time frame of when all of a sudden you're better normal person that it's that just isn't a thing like we, we believe in constant, you know, your whole life striving to get better and better. Complacency oh, yeah. leads to relapse. We see that a lot as well. So I think it's good that it's been a journey and continues to be a journey for you. Right. And then, you know, I still like try to write every day and examine my behavior and see if there's anything that I did that might be wrong or that I need to fix. And I'll find something often. I'm like, okay, I need to go back and touch base with that person and alter what, you know, a communication or whatever it might be. Um, you know, so as a person in recovery, I, I really do think it is a continuous, lifelong uh, practice of humility and practice of bettering yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I really, you know, you didn't need to apologize for explaining the truth of your recovery. You know, like that, that's, that's the beautiful part is it's, it's hard to articulate what it looks like. Yeah. You know, it, it's because yeah. it's so personal. We're like, recovery almost becomes this like projection like your recovery should be like this because that's how mine was so if everyone can kind of name their experience of recovery there becomes a lot more models to to choose from or look at mm. so i appreciate the way that you explained your process you know and it's always messy and confusing and cloudy and happy and joyful it's just life you know everything well in some ways i think yeah. becoming or getting sober we we can be ahead of a lot of other people because we've actually done a lot of work we've soul searched we've confronted our past we've made amends we've done a lot of things that your average high producing human being maybe never had to or never got the opportunity to do that personal work and soul searching oh, so yeah. a lot of times i think addiction can uh and really handling it can put us even a little higher than those that have never had to do the work absolutely my uh my partner actually and i think this is super unique um self works a bit of a program um she's totally nice. normal like she has no problems with substances but she sees so much value in uh, what certain programs of recovery have to offer that she she does the you know tenth step. She does her little writing every day. She like did a fourth step and talked to like her mom or something. And like, um, I love that. Yeah, wow. it's. I mean, how many other resources are there to just better yourself? you know, and spend every day having something you can do to better yourself. 
It's such a beautiful process. Yeah. I wish it was more available to the to the average person. I think it's out there. They just have to need it or want it. And a lot of people just don't know they need it. Yeah. So they don't want it. <laughs> totally. Totally. They get the nail on the head there. So I have a question. Um, yeah. So for myself, I know I'm speaking for both Dallas and myself. We actually didn't know what we wanted to do while we were using, or maybe we had ideas. But once we got sober, we got put on this other path of, of you know, counseling and, and, you know, drug rehab where we're at now. But for you, it seems like you already had your purpose going while you were at NYU. You already knew the path you were going to be on, and that path has continued uh, in your sobriety. Is that right? Yes, uh, no, absolutely. And I think that's why my story looks like what it looks like. Um, I think because of uh, all the trauma in my childhood, um, I needed some sense of control. And so when I was 12, I decided I was going to work in film. I was going to be a narrative filmmaker and laid out a plan to do that and followed that plan. And it actually worked, which is kind of miraculous. <laughs> well, I mean, having an idea at that age and putting all that energy, I think that's that's amazing. You knew what you wanted to do. Yeah, no, I, I really did. And like I guessed what I needed to know to actually be able to follow through on that. I learned all the editing software programs to the best of my ability and and got my first internship at 16, second at 17, hired as an employee at 18, and then started doing bigger projects. Like I directed a video for New York Fashion Week when I was like 20. Um nice. Yeah, no, thank you. That was a fun one. That was yeah, glamorous. That's awesome. Uh so I think my use was really designed, like I think I mentioned, around being as numb and productive as possible. Like I made a conscious decision when I was 16 years old that I would try every drug in every combination, no matter how dangerous, to find what would make me that. And I did. Wow. So, so yeah, like, like it's, that's, I think, somewhat unique to me. And I'm, I mean, there's others like me, but pretty unique within, the, within recovery communities that I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And my use was really designed around accomplishing those things. Yeah. Yeah, man, that's crazy. I, it's the irony is I made that same agreement to myself at the same age. Hmm. At sixteen, I made the same agreement to do every drug that existed, just as like a, a goal, just a goal for junior year of high school, not to get good grades, not to excel in baseball, but I wanted to make sure that I tried every drug. Yeah, just to say that I did. That's where I was at. That's what was important to me, you know. And it wasn't like yours. Where it's like, what combination will make me not feel and achieve my goals? My goal was just to try, mm. you know? <laughs> I think that's pretty, con that's, that, would, that, that was my friends too, right? Like I was doing it with a purpose, but my friends were doing everything. I actually, I, ended, I never touched uh, heroin or meth. Um, those aren't part of my story, but like my friends certainly did. Um. So they were trying every drug to find what would make them the numbest only, you know, which yeah. might not be what you were doing. It might have been purely for the sake of being able to say, yes, I've done all these things. Um, yeah, just to check the box. Yeah, that's a, 
I don't know if I've heard that one before. That's a pretty funny <laughs> anecdote. It's just from blatant, you. dude. It's just a blatant ego thing. I kinda, yeah, I've done them all. I kind of <laughs> love it. I love it. I mean, I'm, I'm I'm sorry that it worked out the way it did, but but uh, I'm also not sorry because now I get to sit here and speak with you and have a wonderful conversation. <laughs> dude, yeah, exactly. You know, it's you know, you hear a lot of people in sobriety say they don't regret how it shaped out. You yeah. know, it's. It's why we are the the way that we are now, you know, good and bad. How much does the writing? Because I I know you you touched on being a writer and and writing articles or pieces or editorials, maybe you even said. And just correct me if I'm wrong, but how much does the writing play a role in your sobriety now? Oh, you know, it, if any. Yeah, yeah. That that's a great question. Yeah, great question. Um. Yeah, I mean, uh, like I said, I started going by the pseudonym for, uh, you know, recovery related for the memoirist writings. Um, writing has been one of the primary, if not like the primary way I've made sense of my past. Um, I bet. It's, you know, I gave you the short breakdown, but I've had a really wild and varied life. Um, and it's just trying to put it all together. So it, it is really important for my recovery because it helps me understand why, why I am the way I am and uh, how all of these disparate events are actually connected. Um, and so to like, so like those pieces I've published, I think, uh, one creative essay on bipolar disorder, one creative essay on that cult in Italy, um, and one creative essay on, on, uh, addiction and recovery, um, in, in like, uh, student literature journals, some of like the bigger ones, but still student journals, but I can't not give myself too much credit, <laughs> but yeah, that, that has been really important to me. And like, I mentioned I'm very loud about my addiction and loud about it in writing because I know that someone's going to read it and go, Oh shit, you know, that's me. And so that's why I'm pitching uh, or I've, I've successfully pitched, but now trying to move on to the book deal stage, um, a full memoir in which I'm not going to use my name a single time. I'm just going to refer to myself as the boy or the young man. Um, so nice. that anyone can insert themselves into that character and uh you know hopefully somebody i mean if it gets distributed somebody will need it you know it will yeah i hope so <laughs> yeah it will it will no that's so cool and i'm i'm that's a great response i i love that i think it's a beautiful medium to display addiction and recovery you know cuz you think of kind of the the common take on sobriety and it's it's a pretty vocal one it's you know i don't i don't often think of like recovery or sobriety as this like creative outlet you know so i, I like the the medium that you're using uh to to express those things and then i think it doubles as well as like this personal coping strategy you know like we yeah. work with clients all the time and journal your feelings identify what's going on and once you can identify it in your mind get it out get it out of your head absolutely get it on paper and then look at it objectively and see what's there you know there's a lot to learn totally so that's pretty interesting 
Well, and I think the more that we can do that, the more we keep taking the stigma off of being a drug addict, the more we can remove like, oh, you're you were a drug addict or Mm -hmm. you're a drug addict. It's just starting to become like more like, oh, yeah, okay, you were a drug addict. And now look at you now. (laughs) I really do think that, you know, your efforts, our efforts, you know, the the it's starting to be more cool. Uh, for lack of better words, to be sober. Whereas like, you know, 20, 30 years ago, if you were sober, you didn't want to tell anybody because people were like, okay, weirdo. (laughs) (laughs) So I think we're, we're, it's a good time for you to be doing this, to just keep peeling back the stigma of drug addicts and former drug addicts. I think it's amazing and alcoholic. No, I, I totally agree with this time and thank you. And like, um, you know, besides for it, just helping me, uh i think it's really like it's it seems weird to say this about my own life but i think my story taken in whole is really important um because i because i don't fall under nearly any stigma of the addict you know like i'm the kid that you would never identify as being an alcoholic as being an addict um so you know showing the world or as much as possible that like this is something that affects everyone you know like your coworker who's doing super well and seems like an awesome solid guy like he he might be an addict right <laughs> and, uh, yeah it's not visible a lot of the time um so I'm, I'm hoping that you know i can help at least some people with that and lower that stigma like you said yeah, absolutely. I think you will too, you know. So how how long what more could you tell us about the book? Are you or the memoir? Are you writing it now? Is it done? When can we buy it? Is that going to be happening soon? I want to know more about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um so essentially I wrote a uh, pitch piece where I wrote a memoir in 30 pages. Um nice. and then uh Inkwell Management is the top lit agency in the world which is nice um but i uh super nice pitched, yeah yeah i pitched to an off- kind of a big deal <laughs> a little bit uh I'm, I'm not i'm not in quite yet but um i pitched to an author there totally convinced her and then she pitched me to her agent um and it's it's a long process like for the agent to read and get back um but uh the stage it's at now is I have a lot of it written. So when that agent finally does get back to me and it's, it's basically, it's like pretty likely that it'll work out since I have one of her own authors telling her she should take me on. Um, And then I would guess it'll be like eight months of writing before, uh, before I have a finished version. So then after gotcha. according to like i have a few mentors in writing established authors and whatnot and they they're guessing that it'll probably like be more like two or three years to publishing um it's just wow. yeah it's just a long process so i wish i could say it's coming out in six months but yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's gonna it's gonna be some time it's just a it's just a long process between going through editors and agents and publishing houses and blah 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 of blah course. Yeah. Well, hey, good things take time. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Good things take time. And if it's a good idea now, it'll be a good idea in three years or two years or hopefully one year. Yeah. <laughs> I've, after 
<laughs> based on you know all of the conversations and guidance I've had with established authors and and whatnot, it it is much more likely than not that it is going to go that route, um, according to all of them. <laughs> so I, I have high hopes for it. I have high hopes. Did you take writing classes uh, at NYU? Like, are, are, or is this just almost self-taught? Uh, totally self-taught. Um, I've been writing my entire life. Um, I, I, I started um, actually, no, sorry. Um, I was like, I was always a huge reader. Uh, when I had that mental illness, I wanted to self-diagnose. So I took all of these abnormal psychology books that my dad had to try to diagnose his own father, who he thought was mentally ill. And I'd like <laughs> read them with a dictionary next to me for like hours and hours and hours. And I would spend so much more time in these like rabbit holes of dictionary definitions than I did actually reading. Um, but uh yeah, right around that time, I started reading like Stephen King and Chuck Palahniuk and Darren Foster Wallace when I was uh, when I was eight. Actually, a line from David Foster Wallace is what triggered the suicide attempt. In uh, Infinite Jest, he has this passage where he writes that uh, the suicidal person will take their own life the way the person standing at the window of a burning high rise will eventually jump, and the idea that the terror of the fall remains a constant um but it's the lesser of two terrible possibilities uh and that really stuck with me um wow uh but yeah and that was that eight years old you read that that was at eight yeah yeah oh, <laughs> um, <laughs> such a like grown up i mean i'm i'm struggling wrapping my head around i i don't know how you at that age uh I was a weird kid. Got that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, unique. I was, you were unique. I was a unique kid. Um, so yeah, I started writing from that age and uh, took my first class in writing last year. And my professor was like, holy shit, dude. Like, <laughs> like we need to actually work outside of class. Let's make something happen. And uh, nice. that's how that ball got rolling was I took one class and the professor was like, oh, you should be doing this at a different level. <laughs> it was very kind of him. That's, that's a, a nice validation. And, and I agree. I think, you know, having so much exposure to so much different writing, it kind of in your mind, you start to realize what, how it should go and what you should say and how to arrange the words. Oh, I think yeah. it starts to become part of you. I was a very avid reader when I was like five, six, seven. Like yeah. we always went to the library and I think that's what got me through somehow graduating high school is all of that early mm -hmm. reading and understanding just the basics, which I don't know how much kids get that anymore. Really? And it's, you know, totally true that like the best way to improve your writing is to read. Like some of the best advice I've ever gotten for writing was read more than you write every day and write every day. So like mm. every day, even if I just, you know, write for 15 minutes, I read for half an hour you know and uh I like that yeah i like i like this idea okay yeah it's it was really it was really good advice and it really does work to help you uh help you grow and improve it's a long anecdote about writing wow. <laughs> yeah no but it's a really good one you know i think um what comes up for me too is kind of like 
the prerequisite of being a good writer was 12, 15 years of trying to figure out what you want to say. Mm. You know, it's kind of like, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's hard to, it's like you were just going through this. You had to have that life experience to have all this stuff to say, you know, and it's, it's kind of crazy to think about and it's important, but yeah. I think that's why I, I was mo- able, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 you're good. Go for it. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say that I, I think that's why I was able to write at an advanced level from a pretty young age. Like by the time I was 13, 14, I've looked back on some of my old work and it's like, it's like adult. Like it, it is pretty, it's, it reads like Cormac McCarthy. It's nuts. Um, like, nice. Yeah. It's really strange reading my writing from that age, but I think I couldn't have done it. And, you know, this is a topic that, that we could discuss um, that I have mixed opinions on but you know to a degree trauma and these visceral experiences are necessary to a degree um for for producing work and i don't think i would have been able to do and write that way without having had all this trauma all of these visceral experiences um but i have a mixed actually wrote an essay on that stance Yeah, I, I wrote a whole essay on that on on trauma and art. <laughs> yeah, I would understand why you had a mixed feeling or a mixed bag of emotions mm. towards the trauma is because on one hand you're observing it, and the other hand you experienced it. Yeah, one hurts a lot more than the other because you right. lived that experience, and the other side is you're not in that experience anymore, and you're benefiting from the experience so it's kind of difficult to weigh in on it's uh it's definitely complicated you know it's it's highly complicated and uh you know it's been a long-held concept that you know um trauma and turmoil are like almost a necessity for art that like that's that the best art arises from from turmoil and from uh trauma and yeah, I have I have a lot of difficulty uh, reckoning with that because at once trauma and uh, these visceral experiences do give you so much material to pull from, and mm-hmm. I think they instill a degree of empathy that's very hard to acquire otherwise. When you experience these emotions, you understand these emotions. You're more likely to understand how people experience emotions when these things happen. Um, So in that way, I think it's hugely beneficial because you understand what people go through when they, when they go through these things. Um, Yeah. Well said. Well said. Yeah. It's relatable. Yeah. Yeah. So I was surprised to hear uh, prior to us starting this show, we had talked about you being a skateboarder and living in Santa Cruz. I'm like, well, of course, aren't aren't most kids growing up here? But that's not the case. You actually grew up in New York and you were a skateboarder. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> I think skateboarding, skateboarding was a huge part of my life. And uh, I think it was the first escape. Um, the adrenaline, the pain, honestly, of falling, that was enough to dull the, the, 
constant horror anthology that was just running by behind my eyes at all times um you know the adrenaline the pain like it revoked the power of those images and so yeah i became extremely passionate and uh and by the time i was 14 15 i think i mentioned i was writing for companies and and all of that and uh and that kind of got obliterated after after an injury um it's funny like all my friends are are pro now and uh yeah my whole oh, really? my whole crew yeah they're they're all pro and i'm i'm very happy with what i'm doing i don't have any regrets regarding not following that to its logical conclusion um but it, but it is interesting to see right like that yeah. other life i could have lived <laughs> Especially if it's like in your face, you're watching them do all the things you thought you'd always be doing. Yeah. You know, there's a little while where it hurt to watch for sure. Like there is a little while where I'd be like, wow, I really missed out on an entire life track, but I, I love where I am. You know, I love what I'm doing. So I don't have that anymore at all. Yeah, no, I get that, man. I get that. Yeah. Just, that's, Skateboarding is, I think, what I was taking away from it too. When you're skateboarding, it's hard to think about other stuff, man. It's like you're you're present. Exactly. You, you it's hard to live in the story or live in the thought mm-hmm. when you're participating in something like skateboarding. Um, and it's a beautiful outlet, you know. It's a beautiful outlet. It it almost works just as much as alcohol. It's they both achieve the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. No, I think uh, you said it better than me. Um, that's what yeah when I say it was my first escape, of course that's that's really what I mean is <laughs> it was the first thing that actually gave me some relief, not a lot, but at least at least some, you know, right, right. So you're working on a project now uh locally. Uh, why don't you tell us about that? It's actually the same circumstance as the film I co-edited that won its best student short at the IDA Awards. Uh, I had worked previously with the director of the graduate department in film in a, on a professional basis. So when the team behind this project went to UCSC to ask if any students would want to do this, I, they basically just said, Jackson. <laughs> and uh it wasn't like an interview really or anything or it was a brief interview but uh that's how i ended up on the project and uh the pro the full details of this project are very hush hush um but what i can say is that it is a going to be a narrative film um that the pre-production that i'm doing is the same as a documentary where I am currently conducting research by talking to folks uh, like Angie, like you guys, um, who have a deep understanding of recovery in Santa Cruz in order to build out um, the most authentic picture we can possibly put together. And what that means further is actually casting from the community. So, for example, Angie, when when we spoke, that that was part of what was on the table was them seeing it and going, oh, whoa, she would be amazing for this. Maybe we can ask her for that. Um, it, or like along those lines, I'm not working on that level of things. Um, 
So that's the general breakdown of what I'm doing right now is I'm talking to uh, active addicts. I'm talking to people in recovery. I'm talking to SLE managers, uh, rehab CEOs and marketing folks, and just doing everything I can to build this picture from the active addicts perspective, from the recovering person's perspective, from the recovery leader's perspective, like Angie, like yourself. Um, so that's, that's the general breakdown of, uh, what that looks like right now. Yeah. Yeah, man. That's, that's awesome. What like a, a passion project, you know, especially oh for you being in recovery, how could there be more of a, a perfect candidate to participate in this? Oh, I, I can't express enough how grateful I am to be a part of this. Um, I had a really, really exciting call yesterday they're probably going to listen to this and laugh but um i i started <laughs> uh like crying happy tears we weren't video chatting it was just audio um because the lead producer said that uh he believes that he, he's been oscar nominated twice said he believes wow. this is the beginning of a long professional relationship and i i literally started crying i was just like like i i, I wow. i'm in i'm in i'm in um we'll see what happens it's a 15 year goal for you right there no Almost. seriously <laughs> like, that's that's like the moment you know no it was it was like the words i've been waiting to hear since i was 12 um so that that's super exciting i mean it is it is surreal uh seeing this come together yeah yeah well dude congrats that's so awesome and like i said what a beautiful like passion project you know you know, my big question for you, if if you can speak to it, is what has been kind of your takeaways from the research? Like what are, you know, maybe some of the pros of the recovery and the sobriety out here? And maybe what are some of the cons to the area and the addiction? If, you know, maybe you could weigh in on, on the good and the bad of, of this area. Totally, totally. I think Santa Cruz is a really special and interesting place for recovery. Because I feel like it is both a fantastic place to get sober and a very hard place <laughs> to get sober. And it is both of those That's things. True. Um, it, you know, of course, it, addiction is so rampant. I mean, like disproportionately to the rest of the country, uh, significantly disproportionately to the rest of the country. Um, drugs are so accessible. And, uh, but, but, there's so many resources to get sober. There are so many like sober activities to do that are so immediately accessible, the beach, disc golf, like all of those things. Um, so, you know, speaking uh, to recovery leaders like Angie, you know, Angie, you've said that this is a very, very difficult place to get sober. And I don't, I don't disagree with that. But I think it's really dependent on the person. For me, this was a really good place to get sober because I was able to be active, play tennis, do the things I love to do before I was drinking um, very easily. It was also accessible. But for a lot of people, of course, it is it is very difficult because they they aren't inclined to utilize those outlets. I was always very athletic growing up. Like I, I was playing varsity tennis, varsity ski team. Um, and, uh, of course the skateboarding. 
So for me, Santa Cruz was, was way easier to get sober in than like New York with the long winters or Massachusetts with the extra long winters. Um, spent some time in Massachusetts. Long, cold, dark. Yeah. Uh, it's brutal. Yeah. I, I don't understand how anyone gets sober over there. Like, <laughs> in the light, bubbly personalities that, you know, accompany the East Coast. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The light, bubbly personalities. The uh, understanding soul searchers, you know? <laughs> well, I feel like, I mean, I feel like that's kind of the most beautiful take in my opinion, right? Like the first prerequisite for recovery is you need people in addiction. So Santa Cruz kind of is the perfect breeding ground. We have a bunch of addiction. We have a huge drug problem and we have a huge recovery community because of that. Mm -hmm. And so that's a cool parallel. I like, you know, I like to focus on the recovery, the addiction we know is there, but the solution in the recovery is paramount you know it's massive totally and it is here just like you've experienced and we've experienced and i like that conversation and it's a place where in most if you most places you live in santa cruz county you can walk to a meeting you know like they are everywhere so it's i mean it's just like you said it's uh this give and take where the like the frequency the rampant addiction breeds just as potent recovery mm-hmm. so <laughs> so it's a mixed so bag with, with all that it's interesting this timing because i know what we've seen on our end with covid what are you seeing out there in the community because i know like live meetings were canceled um and it's been very hard on addicts and recovering addicts with covid due to the sheltering in place and the inability to be around people, which is what helps us heal. Uh, have you seen just the timing of this? It's, it's got, it has to be interesting and different than normal recovery in Santa Cruz. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I'm very active in programs of recovery in Santa Cruz. So I've been seeing that landscape quite a lot. And uh, that's another one where it's really mixed, right? Like for, in a lot of ways, this is so much easier because you have no excuse to not go to a meeting if that's what your recovery looks like, if that's how you're getting sober or clean. Um, And so I've heard from, I met at least a dozen newcomers who got sober during the, during uh, the pandemic. And for them, uh, this, they, they think that this was actually easier than, um, Mm -hmm than during normal times which is really surprising to me but it does make sense when you think about it because whenever you're feeling that urge you can open your computer and be in a meeting in five minutes so even though big pro sorry that's a big pro huge pro huge pro and of course the huge con is the social element of programs of recovery is the driving force that keeps people sober and we're losing that so I honestly think it's harder for people who have been in long-term recovery than it is for people who are newly getting sober. Like I'm really struggling with the lack of human connection. Every, almost everyone I know is really struggling with the lack of human connection. But so for someone brand new, it's, I think it has more pros than cons. 
Does that make sense? 100%. I totally agree. And I think we even see that on our front. We've had more people come in in the last year than many of the years prior. And uh, mm. I think it's for that reason. And you're right. It's it's easier for them to stay because where are they going to go back to? Right. <laughs> you want to go back to your apartment? Like you might as well stay here. So it's, <laughs> uh, I think we've had more success with people early on in recovery as well. Yeah, no, I like that. Uh, oh, that's really interesting. I like yeah, that's an interesting approach, you know. I, I or your experience of that is is interesting to me as well, especially the long term, short term. If you don't know, I mean, a a great example is at our facility because of COVID, we had to like exclude visitations, so we lost a lot of things that made the community family atmosphere so wonderful. For example, on Sundays, dude, we would have two hundred people at our facility. Bef- BC before COVID we'd have 200 people hanging out and it was a sober, clean, sunny California volleyball swimming. Like it was just awesome. Yeah. And then we lost that. So for the staff and the clients at that exact moment, it was brutal because we lost a lot, but now the clients have no idea that that was even a possibility. Right. They didn't know we would go to the beach and do all these reward trips because we, they never had it, you know? So it's it's interesting to look on the effect it did have and the the pros it's having now. So I just kind of wanted to tie that together. And then also, I wanted to kind of bring something up. Maybe you're familiar, Ange. I don't know if you're familiar either. But recently, I've been invited to this app called Clubhouse. Have you ever heard of it? I haven't, actually. Yeah. You haven't? Okay. Tell me I haven't? About it. Oh, man. This is super cool, and this is a very new thing that I've been experiencing, and you'll see how it relates to, like, COVID, community, recovery in a couple seconds. But basically, it's an app that you have to be invited to. It's, like, in beta. I sound really cool saying that, that the app's in beta. I feel very hip right now. (laughs) But anyways, it's essentially, like, a real-time podcast. It's kind of like Reddit, where you can find whatever you want. But they're conversations. They're not blogs. Uh, it's like a Zoom meeting with no uh, video. So it's all these audio conversations happening in real time. And at any Joe Schmo can run a specific Zoom meeting about whatever they want. So the cool part is there's like 30 different recovery meetings happening all day long by all these different people. And you can hop in whenever you want. The topics are different. And there's also no video. So, like, the barrier to entry to, like, communicate and be vulnerable (coughs) is really dumbed down. It's really lowered the bar Mm. where you can just turn your mic on and say whatever you want and be in a meeting any time of the day on any topic. That is so interesting. yeah, Yeah, it's really, really cool. And... Since it's new, the people on the platform have been saying, like, I feel like this was made for recovery. Like, the barrier to entry, it's so easy to just share whatever's on your heart and then get feedback, just audio feedback, at any time of the day, whenever you want. Mm. And there's a lot of accessibility. There's a lot of big names that are in these rooms just communicating. Like, I can't I can't think of how many times I've heard, like, oh, my God, do you know that I was just talking with so-and-so? Like, it's it's... It's an interesting new form. I haven't gone in there for recovery, 
I need to start checking that out. Yeah. On oh, Wednesday, yeah. I went to seven meetings <laughs> without leaving my room. What? Wow. Just jumping across meetings. Wow. I got kicked out of a woman's meeting. It was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't read the topic, and they're like, uh, if your name's Dallas, we need you to leave. That's <laughs> We're assuming you're a male. <laughs> yeah. That's happened to me once. I did not read the, the women's meeting part of it and walked in and was like, wow, this, this is really not diverse. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite stories about that is I had a friend. We uh, I live in Watsonville. And a friend of mine, she was a, a female, she went to a men's Spanish-speaking meeting. <laughs> and so they were trying to tell her in Spanish that she couldn't be there because she was a woman and it was a men's meeting. But she didn't understand because she didn't speak Spanish. And she never went to an AA meeting ever again. <laughs> oh, my God. That's... So good and bad of a story. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Yeah. So it's funny. It's a perfect excuse to never forward. have to go back, you know, the trauma. <laughs> so I just wanted to share that um, for you, the audience, myself, just kind of what I've been experiencing. It's been a huge resource for me as someone in long-term recovery because when you need it, it's there. Yeah. No, they yeah, no, definitely check it out. I hope the audience does as well. Sounds like a great resource, absolutely. Yeah, it's huge. And there was uh, mental health rooms. Like, dude, so much. I couldn't believe it. But anyways, without me getting on a crazy tangent about that, I just think it's rare to find a new recovery resource, you know? So when I when I find something cool, I want to share it, you know? Yeah, so yeah, you've you probably should. been on it enough that you have a couple of invitations. Uh, I do. I have two left. So, Jackson, if you'd like an invitation... um. I'll text it to you. Yeah, please do. Um, Andrew definitely has my information. I can also send an email after this. Um, but yeah, I'd love Perfect. that. Thank you. Yeah, dude. Yeah, I'll totally text it to you because you have to uh, – do you have iPhone? Yeah. It's iPhone only. I do. Okay. I do. Perfect. It's iPhone only, and it registers your account through your cell phone, so I'll have to text it to you. Yeah, and the only way you get invitations is being on it more and more and more, and the only way you get in is by an invitation. Right, huh? What would be like the top three things you've taken from getting sober? Like what would be the best three things or just one, you know, you would want to share with the audience or people in recovery, new to recovery. What are your three biggest takeaways from getting sober? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. So I think, uh, the biggest, the biggest one that took me a long time to realize and, uh, this is, this is specifically for 12-step programs as far as I'm aware, but I think it also goes for, for many other uh, resources, is with these self-constructed programs, um, like 12 steps, it needs to be, you need to create an outpatient program for yourself. Um, for a long time, I thought, meetings would get me sober. I thought sponsorship would get me sober. I thought working the steps would get me sober. But I ultimately realized that I had to create an outpatient program where every day I was spending at least an hour on recovery. Um, whether that was calling other addicts or doing some writing or doing some reading, um, designing, it's, it's so hard to do, but like so important to design an outpatient program for yourself. So that's the number one that. yeah. 
Great advice. Yeah, I'm glad. Yeah, that's the number one uh, piece of advice I would give to someone in early recovery is design an outpatient program for yourself where you're spending at least an hour a day on recovery. Um, the second takeaway uh, would be find activities immediately. Find, like, you, you don't know whether you'll like them yet, but just do them. Go play disc golf, go play tennis, go do something go for a hike. You're not going to want to, but you will see like after you do it a few times, you won't want to, you'll, you don't want to live without it. Um, so those would be my top two would be finding activities immediately and designing yourself an outpatient program. Uh, the third I would say is do everything you can (laughs) to focus on how you can help the people around you and focus on how you can be a better friend, a better partner, a better lover, whatever. Um, and forget those things you feel or put aside those things you feel remorse for, put aside your regrets and just live for the people around you, work on yourself every day and do things. Yeah, I love that. It's it's like the definition of holistic healing. It's, you know, body, mind, spirit, you know, you're encompassing everything, which is uh, successful recovery. So I love that. I'm glad. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, those were huge, man. I really appreciate you sharing those. I loved uh, the language of the outpatient design, design the program you need. You know, that's that's. Uh, I've been in recovery a long time. I've never heard it language that way. And that was, that was kick ass. <laughs> I'm glad it clicked for you. Yeah, finally. <laughs> I get it. I get it now. So Jackson, in closing, my friend, where can everyone find you? If the audience is like, man, that guy's badass. Where can I follow him? Where can I see these new projects where can i read his creative writing like where, where can, can i see the projects he's already done with the the independent films and all that totally totally you, um yeah it, it's funny because i i'm just going under this uh new pseudonym um but uh i'll i'll just get my real names so people can look me up <laughs> <laughs> whatever you're comfortable with yeah it is what it is um, so the pseudonym going under is Jackson Rose. If you want to follow the Instagram I just created, it's jackson.rose underscore official. Um, if you want to see a lot of the work and skateboarding that I've already posted or on my actual account, uh, it's Jackson Patrick Sternin, P-A-T-R-I-C-K-S-T-E-R-N-I-N. Uh, the film I co-edited that most recently won the International Documentary Award is called People Like Me. It's available on Vimeo and YouTube. And uh, yeah, um, if you follow that Jackson Rose official account, I'll be posting all of my art on there. I'll be posting my writing. Um, if you look up Leviathan Jewish Journal, you can find some of my creative essays uh, you'll have to finger through uh, the spring 2020 issue, but it is there. Um, <laughs> and yeah, that's that's sort of the array of places you can find my writing, find my work, find my art. And I hope you enjoy whatever you whatever you find, whatever you decide nice. to check and out. They can uh, DM you on your uh, Instagram if they want to reach out and 
Oh yeah, totally. Conversations. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Let me put that out there. If you want to talk to me, uh, recovery or not, if you just want to chat by all means, send me a direct message. I will respond. I'm always happy to talk. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. Right on, man. Thank you for sharing that. And I will say if they find your essay in the spring 2020 journal, they're a true fan. Yeah. They finger through (laughs) all of it and find it like they're on the team. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) No, no. I'm honored uh, for, you know, anyone who decides to check out what I have out there. <sighs> awesome. Well, thank you. There we go. Well, so thank you. much. Yeah. yeah. Right. You go first. We're about to thank each other at the same time. I think that's, that's appropriate. <laughs> that's appropriate. You know, we both had a really great time, you know? Yeah. Um, but seriously though, Jackson, thank you so much for being on the show, man. This has been a powerful conversation and one that was needed. So I really appreciate your time. I'm so glad. Yeah. I, I loved being on the show. I had a blast chatting with you guys and uh, I really hope someone out there hears something they need to hear. All right. Thank you so much, Jackson. All right. All right, guys, that's our show for today. We hope you found some value from listening. And if you did, please share with someone you know or love. You can find us on social media. We are at Elevate Addiction Services. And if you or a loved one are struggling with addiction, please call our toll-free, confidential 24-hour helpline at 833-33-SOBER or visit our website at elevaterehab.org.